millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Charlie Arnott, CEO of the Center for Food Integrity. I tell food industry leaders what they don't want to hear because, well, somebody has to. And I'm Susan Schwally, president of the food and beverage practice for the MPD Group. Behaviorally speaking, that means I know what you ate for lunch, why you ate it, and what you're going to eat tomorrow. And I'm Kevin Ryan, resident food scientist, anthropologist, innovation coach, and founder of Malachite Strategy and Research in Fort Collins, Colorado. I have led innovation and strategy for companies like General Mills and Amazon. How come you get three titles and Susan and I each get one? Yeah. I don't know. You could you could choose another one. You could do Grand Poobah. You can put it all in there. It's fine. I don't need superlatives to be confident. <laughs> <sighs> And, uh, by the way, we are the Three Squares. Dishing on the food industry. And Three Squares is fortunate to have support from General Mills. So our guest today is Jason Clay. I feel very, very fortunate to have Jason along with us. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met. He taught at both Harvard and Yale. He leads World Wildlife Fund U.S. efforts to improve private sector supply chain management and has helped entire sectors improve their sustainability performance. All right, let's kick things off with talking about what's on the menu. Kevin, you want to go? Sure. I am really interested in um, what's going on with inflation, that the idea that inflation is at a 40-year high, but consumer savings are dwindling, but also the fact that brands are mostly focusing on high-margin premium offerings and not value-based consumer goods. So I just kind of want to get your guys' opinion. Should CPG, should they be focusing on value in this current climate? Well, some are, right? I mean, you've got Walmart and Target and others that are continuing to stay focused in that area. But as you look at the dollars in innovation, or what you're saying is they're they're going more into the high-end, the high-margin products? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can kind of see them. They're going into pet food and wellness and everything. It seems like CPG is quite uh, focused, which makes sense, right? I mean, their structure seems to be about if I can get it out there and I can get a high margin on it, I'm going to do it versus try to get high volume, lower margin. I don't know. Susan, are you seeing, you know, uh, a, a, an ask for value? Do you think that's still there? I mean, or do you think it's coming? Well, I, you know, I get questions at both ends, right? So look, I think it depends on who your end user is, who your customers. Um, we just finished out a year that probably a lot of us want to forget. And it's the kind of time of year where predictions and forecasts come about. So Whole Foods, always fascinating to look at theirs. And this is very illuminating. Ultra urban farming, uh, buzzless spirits, and functional fizz. So that says to me um, a little bit about consumer mindset on health and environmentalism. And I see companies going after this um, in food and beverage, and they're going to chase it. It's some some fancy words for better for me, better for the planet. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's it's dressed up for Whole Foods, better for me, better for the planet. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as you said, Susan, I think we, we tend to think that value foods are going to be for lower income consumers and premium foods are going to be for higher end consumers. And I, you know, that I, I've never seen that to be true. You've got working class consumers buying premium products, you know, and, and, uh, people driving, uh, Tesla's going to, uh, Walmart, right? So it, it, it goes both ways. I just think that with the current economic climate, 
I wonder whether or not you're going to see more value add. And the reason I say that is during the recession of COVID or during COVID, I should say, you saw a decrease in the amount of private label. You saw a decrease in some of the, um, you know, the, the, the use of deep discounters. And I wonder whether or not on the flip side after, after COVID, we're going to see them come back. But what's interesting is, is it's kind of a bifurcated strategy, right? I mean, what you're talking about is both ends of the scale. Is there no one left in the middle? Tell me what you mean by in the middle, because I think that we all straddle both sides. Right. You've talked about value. Susan's talked about premiumization. So what about the, the, the middle of the bill curve? Is there just nothing left there or is it just not of interest? I think it's just hard to play in the middle. I mean, I think if anything, CPG has always learned is no one wants to get stuck in the middle. You don't want to get stuck in the middle halfway in health. You don't want to get there in, uh, you know, uh, functional. And I don't even know if you want to get there in, in costs sometimes, because I think that, I don't know. I, I just don't think most of the times people want to be in the middle. They don't know what they're getting there. It's not value, but it's also not going to be premium to me. Uh, not getting stuck in the middle seems to be a, just kind of a, a learned lesson in CPG, at least in my experience. You know, one of the things that I think is really different due to the pandemic than other recessionary periods is the fact that people have a lot more money to spend at retail on food because they're not spending as much at restaurant. And look, it used to be roughly 80, 20, 80% of our food came from in home, 20% out of the restaurant, but our dollar spend was 50, 50. Well, we've upended that. And we're still elevated in in-home. Consumers have spent a lot more on food at retail, but they've still pulled back on their total food spend. I mean, just think about that for a second. So, of course, they're reaching up at retail. And I think that's really what's going on. And that's where you get, you know, folks of all different socioeconomic backgrounds buying all kinds of different varieties of products. And it doesn't necessarily have to be private label because I'm not eating out. We've saved all this money. I can reach up, whether that's into the mainstream or, or the, the premium. That's the dynamic that's really different. Since the section is called On the Menu, what I want to know is when you go to a restaurant and you read the menu, do you find the first thing you like and order it? Or do you read the entire menu and then go back and make a decision? If it's a higher end, more fine dining, I don't do much with the menu. I just, I just talk to the server and say, hey, what, what do you recommend? See, I'm completely distrustful. Because every time the waiter suggests something, I'm saying either they have to get rid of it or they've been pushing it. So I never do that. I like to make my own choice. I don't like, but do you, you know. Do you read the whole thing first or do you just find something you like? Oh, I have go? to read the whole thing first. And I, I'm, I'm thinking too, you know, what's, what, what, what do I like? Is that a, you know, is, is that something that's going to, you know, sit well right now? Does it work with, you know, this restaurant? Does that make sense for this restaurant? I don't trust the server. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a find it and go guy, right? Find something I like, make the decision, move on. Okay. Yeah. Do you, yeah. You're a quick decider. But yeah. But then I always have buyer's remorse, right? When everybody else oh at the God. table gets their food, I'm like, oh, I wish, no, I did. Oh. That's why you have to go to a right? tapas restaurant. You can have yeah, yeah. Tapas is always good because you get a little bit of everything. Mm. Is Jason with us? Yay. Excellent. That will close on the menu for this week, keeping you up to date on the food industry. Our table discussion with Jason Clay is next. At General Mills, we know it's not just what we make, but how we make it that matters. We take care in selecting the ingredients behind our beloved brands, such as Cheerios, Nature Valley, Old El Paso, Haagen-Dazs, and Annie's. And we go further by working every day to alleviate hunger, slow climate change, and strengthen communities. Today, that's what it means to make food the world loves. Learn more at GeneralMills.com. 
Jason Clay, our guest today, is Senior Vice President for Markets and Executive Director of the Markets Institute at the World Wildlife Fund. In these roles, he works with companies on more sustainable supply chains, as well as helping them identify and address emerging global issues, trends, and pools impacting their supply chains in a more sustainable, timely, cost-effective, and scalable manner. He leads World Wildlife Fund U.S. efforts to improve private sector supply chain management. He's helped entire sectors improve their sustainability performance. He has authored, get this, 18 books, 400 articles, and he's given more than 1,000 invited presentations. He studied anthropology and agriculture at Harvard, Harvard, the London School of Economics, and Cornell, where he received his Ph.D. All incredibly impressive. Thank you. Nice to be here. I mean, Harvard, London School of Economics, Cornell, all fine schools. But you did have a scholarship offer to go to the University of Nebraska. I mean, you've accomplished so much, but just imagine what it might look like had you chosen to go to the University of Nebraska. Well, the scholarship to the University of Nebraska was to play football. And I figured my odds of lasting four years and retaining that scholarship were probably pretty minimal. So (laughs) (laughs) it seemed just on the face of it that no strings attached going to Harvard seemed a better deal. <laughs> I'm sure that's the case. So Susan and Kevin, uh, welcome. I'll introduce you to Jason. Um, uh, Jason, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is, is, is we've looked at kind of the, the supply chain interruption that we've seen over the pandemic. One of the things that you mentioned recently, which I found quite striking, was the fact that you believe that the disruptions we've seen in the supply chain as a result of the pandemic are just a dress rehearsal for what we're going to see for climate change. That obviously should be tremendously concerning for anyone in the food system. Can you give us a little context for that? Because it's a, it's a pretty draconian prediction. Well, just in the last year, the science is getting better. And so we're beginning to realize what some of the impacts are. So for example, we're finding that that we've all been focus, focused on terrestrial ag and the expansion of ag, but the IPCC didn't actually factor in the emissions coming from permafrost as it melted and permafrost is melting and it will equal all other anthropogenic emissions uh, during during that period that it melts. And so that area is now being farmed in Russia. We're starting to see farming move in and it could well be the next Midwest um, because it will be a huge area where production is going to have plenty of rain and, and decent weather. Uh, but if that area is farmed, all of that carbon is going to volatilize at an even faster rate. So getting to some kind of a net zero or or food that has fewer environmental impacts is going to be really, really hard. But I think the clincher for me about just how little we understand about the impacts of climate change is that a modeling study came out last week that showed that the impacts of climate change based on what is being projected and what people are doing to address it will continue to be negative through 2500. 21 generations. It's not about our kids or our grandkids. It's a lot longer term than that. These are multi-generational times that we're heading into, and we've got to find pathways to help get us where we need to go, but knowing that each generation is only going to be contributing to it, not actually finishing it. So what does that look like um, short term? If you're thinking about you know people in the food system that are listening to the podcast, concerned about their supply chain, but also wanting to do the right thing, however we define the right thing, what does that look like? Well, I think it means a lot more collaboration. We've got to start learning faster from each other, from companies learning from each other, governments learning from each other. It also means that in the face of this kind of impact, continuous improvement is probably not our friend. We need at least stepwise, but probably transformational change. Continuous improvement is a drag on transformational change. We need to start thinking differently. 
probably need new business models. And we need to really take some of the biggest impacts out as quickly as we can. It's going to be about incomplete science because we simply don't have complete data uh, on these things. And we've got to be comfortable with directionally right and course correction after that. I just think that's, that's the kind of territory we're entering now. And all of this, of course, rests on giving farmers incentives, paying for better systems. Today, a lot of those costs are passed on to the farmer, but then in turn onto the planet. So a lot of discussions about subsidies in the world, but the planet actually subsidizes food production more than all the governments combined. Say, Jason, what is going to be required to get it done? I'm the cynic on this uh, podcast. To me, money makes action happen. And I don't see governments collaborating well. What's the tipping point where we will see what you're describing? How do we get there? Well, I I do think it's all going to depend on money. And in fact, why I'm talking about continuous improvement is just look at, at the big infrastructure bill that we've passed. I don't see fixing the current infrastructure as getting us where we need to be with infrastructure in the future. I started writing a, a book about the region I grew up in a couple of years ago, and I was struck that throughout the 19th century, the region was connected by trains about every 15 miles. It wasn't roads. There was no gravel. This was the prairie. The roads lasted when it was dry and maybe when it was frozen in the winter. But to get crops out, you actually needed trains. And so trains came in. And then over 100 years, we've basically torn up all those train tracks. We've gotten rid of all the trains and moved to you know cars and, and trucks and, and you know the rest. We've got to start thinking about leapfrogging technologies and infrastructure into the systems that we need going forward. Quick question, I kind of piggybacking off of Susan's, this is Kevin. Uh, I don't know you've worked in consumer packaged goods. Is the only way forward, I wouldn't say altruistic, but like the idea that companies got to wake up, companies have to wake up and, and, and do something about this and know they're doing it for the planet and all that. Is there a, and I hate to phrase it like this, a win-win future where companies are able to make money doing this and able to provide something to the consumer that is good for the planet. Why don't we start with government subsidies for agriculture? Let's pivot it to climate change because paying farmers to sequester carbon, reduce soil erosion, to improve water quality, farmers know how to do it. With markets, they actually would do it. Let's use those programs to actually jumpstart the markets we need. We need to really, I think, bring in a regulatory structure so the private sector knows what they can do and what they can't do and where they need to focus. So, I mean, I think I think if we don't find ways to motivate individual actors and corporate actors and even governments financially, we're still going to be talking about this in 10 years. I mean, do you see that happening or does it have to be in a bigger, bolder way that's that's more for the for the planet? I, w- I was speaking to a group of about 40 CEOs in the food industry input suppliers, traders, banks, retailers, brands, et cetera. And somebody mentioned that, you know, we're not paying the true cost of food and people were speculating, well, you know, if it's a trillion dollar industry, maybe it's two trillion or even three trillion if you actually included the cost of food. And you could just see the eyes rolling like cash registers saying, oh, that's money we could get. That's money we could get. If we actually covered the true cost of food, virtually all of that money would go to producers because that's where the impacts are. I think companies can make, you know, the same margins they're making today, but have more resilient supply chains. And we're going to need much more resilient supply chains with climate change going forward than 
than we've got right now. Well, Jason, obviously we're living some horrible, um, you know, climate events now, but when does this really become an existential threat to the average everyday person where it's not just a one-off kind of thing? The problem with climate change is that it's the deaths that come from it aren't direct. They're long-term, they're chronic, they're because of poverty, they're because of starvation, they're because of people being displaced out of their homes because of, of water, because of, uh, of extreme events, et cetera. Um, we don't manage things we don't measure. So I think that, that if every day when you looked at the news at the, at the top right corner of whatever you were looking at, it told you how many people had, had died from climate change, we would have a whole different approach to how we're, we're, we're dealing with this. With COVID, we know that the numbers have actually helped keep the focus on what we need to do, what we need people to do, what we need companies to do, governments to do. We need the same kind of focus on climate change, and we don't have it yet. So, Jason, it, it, it's going to be difficult, I think, until there are enough personal events where people begin to experience um, the impact of climate change. Clearly, we saw that with the with the tornadoes in Kentucky and other places. But as those become more uh, frequent, people will begin to internalize that and realize that something has to happen. That being said, there are those in the food system today that if I'm uh, the, the supply chain manager and supply chain owner for a food company, I'm looking at this issue right now. And resiliency is something that is that is paramount to me because I've realized the impact of supply chain disruption uh, over the course of the pandemic. So if I'm, if I'm in charge of, of supply chain for Charlie's Global Food Company, what are the three things I should start focusing on right now? I, I would say you should reach out to your competitors and develop a collaborative strategy for how you ensure more sustainable productions of the things that you all buy, because nobody's big enough to affect these markets by themselves. So becoming aware that you're all in this together. If you're all about providing products on the market that are essential, I mean, food is kind of an essential service, uh, that you need to be working together to, to fix it. And, and most buyers don't buy from the same producers in any given purchase or any given year. And weather is part of that, but also supply chains are part of that because the buyers don't reach all the way to, to production. And yet we need entire regions uh, changing and we need to be taking the demand and pivoting it to where the next region is going to be. It's like, where's the next California going to be in the U.S. food system? Where's the next Midwest going to be in the global food system? We've got to start figuring those things out, anticipating them, because we need to get government and the private sector to, to make that transition smooth, because chaos is the, is, is the worst possible outcome here. I mean, right mm -hmm. now, we've talked about where the externalities are, and most people, when they think of externality, they get of environmental externalities, you know, the things that affect the environment that aren't paid for. But farmers and their families and the people who work for them have the highest rates of poverty, of malnutrition and stunting of anybody on the planet, three times higher than people that live in the cities. Uh, and so they're not getting a fair shake out of the current uh, food system. And so how do we fix the labor part of this? How do we fix the producer part of this? And how do we protect the environment? All of those are essential for a more resilient food system. Jason, you know, you've been living this for, for so long. What changes or things are you thinking about for you and your family around all of this? 
you know, I used to make light of doomsday preppers with Y2K, but given all of this, it causes me to think differently. I think everybody needs to get informed as much as they can, at least about the things that that affect them the most and or that they care about the most. But we need some kind of minimal performance levels for every person and every family that, you know, you need to do this. Systems and structures can make it better. Green energy can you know, be something that that becomes the norm. And it's it's very hard not to have green energy because that's what's available, et cetera. But in terms of how we respond to this, I think it's more about helping people understand how to think, not in a linear kind of direction, but really how to connect the dots, how to see patterns that others aren't seeing, how to anticipate problems and do that kind of intergenerationally. So your kids, their kids are beginning to think differently because we're going to have to think our way out of this. We right now have created a situation where climate change itself is causing soil degradation globally. It's not just farming. Climate change is actually the heat and the, the drought in many areas is, is causing carbon to volatilize in the soil. And this makes soil less of a living organism, less productive, hold less water, uh, require more nutrients, uh, require more inputs, et cetera. So we have the planet actually working against us now. It, I'm sorry, this is coming out a lot more negatively, <laughs> but I've just spent last week talking with a group of, of thought leaders that I convene once a year. And for the first time ever, people were, I would say, kind of across the board depressed by the prospects. It doesn't mean they don't get up every day and, and try to look at that glass half full and do something. But the more we know, the more we realize we're worse off than we thought. And I think we need intergenerational strategies when most politicians won't talk beyond a year or two. Well, you know, Jason, I'm just going to guess that most Americans, if they know something about climate change and are concerned, they know maybe there's a goal to hold temperature increase to what is it, the 1.5 degrees? And maybe that brings some people some comfort. But what I'm I'm hearing is 1.5. We're we're in trouble with that. And we're not even anywhere near that. And so to hear you say it's inner, you know, 21 generations is really eye-opening. So I think that we've got to see that we're not going to solve this problem in our lifetime. Uh, but neither is the next generation. But can we get started on the right things or ways to learn for, say, farmers to learn from each other? Farmers aren't going to be planting the same crop in 10 or 20 years that they are today. Uh, even in the Midwest, it's going to shift. You know, what are the next crops going to be? Who knows how to produce them? What have they learned? What have, what have they found to be different? Bank lending, how do, how do banks put climate change risk into loans to the food industry, to global trade, et cetera? So I think we need to look at how this affects each kind of institution and their actions. And, and awareness is going to come at different times and different, different rates. But I think we all need to be open to information and open to being aware about it and then accepting it as it makes sense to us, which is going to be slower for some people than others. But it's, it's got, we've got to get on that pathway, that escalator to the improvements we need because we need absolute reductions right now in the footprint, not just of greenhouse gas emissions, but water use, habitat loss, soil erosion. Those things need to have an absolute reduction. Can we get people 
moving in the right directions? Can we find a pathway so that people have places where they can learn from each other and learn faster? We need the footprint to decrease. Jason, thank you for for your leadership and what you do at the World Wildlife Fund and the contribution you make to helping us move forward across uh, the food system entirely. It's, it's amazing. And thanks for spending some time with us today on uh, Three Squares. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having me on and, and uh, for starting this, this interesting discussion. We, we need to have many more of them. Wow. So impressive to have Jason come to speak to us. But that was hard. I mean, that was really, really hard to hear. Which may be one of the reasons why it's hard for people to talk about it. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I'm still processing what he said. Like, what what do we take away from that because the problem's so big, it's kind of over overwhelming. It is. And I think that, you know, that it contributes to a feeling of helplessness, which I think is also part of the reason that people don't want to talk about it because they aren't sure what they can do besides um, you know, what we do individually, which feels, you know, insignificant. But but he did leave us with three ideas that I think are are meaningful and worth further discussion for, for those in the food system. The first one about we have to work collaboratively on a pre-competitive basis. Um, we've got to have people who are willing to come together as a sector to say, I, I can't solve this alone. We can't solve it alone. But if we're going to make progress, we can do that together. You know, and that kind of reminds me of the way that the food industry thinks about safety. Because the food industry doesn't usually hold, you know, safety IP close to the vest. They pretty much share it broadly because they see it as a rising tide lifting all boats. And I think to exactly to your point, I think it needs to be very similar to safety. Yeah. And to his point, I mean, you know, if the supply chain is destroyed by climate change, it's destroyed for everybody. All right. So nobody wins. So I think that's number one. I think the, the one that stuck with me the most and made the greatest impression for me was we can't do better. Doing what we're doing and doing better is grossly insufficient. We have to think about doing things completely differently than how we have been doing them. And another reason to think about doing things pre-competitively and collaboratively, because I think we've got a better chance of being transformative if we do it together. Look, it's only taken the second episode for me to bring up Tesla. I mean, to me, we need the Elon Musk of ag or food, right? Mm, I'm not sure we need him, but we need somebody who's going to be as, as transformative as him. Well, I didn't say him, but somebody who comes in and looks at it, who's knowledgeable, but looks at it in a very, very different way. Yeah. And challenges the industry. It does feel that there is some um, competitive stress that is is pushing a little bit toward this, maybe not to the extreme that Jason said that was necessary, but I'm seeing stuff that, uh, especially within you know the tech world, uh, retailers pushing for, you know, uh, vertical farming and, you know, uh, all of that type of, of, of thing, you know, hooking it together in a new way, really pushing the, the more traditional industry to kind of do. So I wonder if that's going to be, but it may not be enough, at least, you know, even from Jason's point of view, I'm not sure if it's enough. Well, you know, there is a fire hose of capital going into ag tech and into food tech. And it's fascinating what's happening in, in, in some of the innovation. Uh, one of the companies, Pivot Bio, has uh, gene edited a microbe that allows cereal plants to extract the nitrogen they need from the soil. You know, it eliminates the need for supplemental anhydrous nitrogen fertilizer. You know, it's that kind of innovation that says, okay, this exists in the soil, this exists in the atmosphere. How do we capture it and put it to work rather than continuing to supplement it with something that's petroleum-based or something that comes from another product? The thing that's, you know, I mean, I, I love listening to Jason because he's so incredibly bright. It can be overwhelming, but I think he's also the kind of, of, of person who has the credibility and the influence to be a catalyst. And, and to me, that's what's exciting about what he does. One thing that I take a lot of heart about is that this, 
moment in history right now for food feels a lot like right before, you remember when Steve Jobs got up and showed the first iPhone yep. and that feeling of wow. But when you look at it, all the technology that the iPhone was built on had been built for decades prior. And it just took that one moment to bring it all together. And I feel like for the last few decades, there have been technologies that have been building up to what I think is going to hit soon. You can feel it in exactly what you're talking about. The um, gene editing for, uh, you know, anhydrous ammonia replacement, the precision fermentation, the biomass fermentation, all of that type of stuff, uh, vertical farming, all of it's coming together. It feels like there's a lot of hope on the horizon as those technologies come together into some sort of inflection point. Yeah, I would agree. I think, I think a lot of it is, is, Still not highly visible, but my glass tends to be half full. And so I think it's great to have people like Jason who can use his phenomenal intellect and, and a lifetime of experience to raise awareness and highlight where we need to focus our time and attention. Uh, but I am optimistic. The key question is, can we get there fast enough? What an important conversation. Okay, time to check our three squares inbox. Hey, uh, Kevin, did you remember to set up our inbox? Um, not yet. But by the time you listen to this, we'll have it set up. So you can send us a voice memo or an email with your food mystery, question, or quiz to three squares mail, the number three squares mail at gmail.com. And your question may very well show up on a future episode. So let's take a look at what we have to consider today. And I just sent it. There it is. Okay. <laughs> While we seem to be in a renaissance of new food product development, what's happened to our naming conventions? It seems like years ago, companies had bigger, bolder ambitions and sophisticated tastes with naming their brands. Even something as pedestrian as candy bars were literary. Three Musketeers or astronomical. Mars, Milky Way, Milky Way, Milky Way. Even sports figures, Baby Ruth. Today, we just get boring, descriptive names or vague promises. Oatly, impossible, beyond. What's up? Have marketers given up, or do consumers really want brands that just have simple names? Kevin, this is in your inbox. Okay. This is like totally in my inbox. I think this really fascinating because I think when we think about these brand names, we we've like lost a lot from like the romantic fog of time, so to speak. Because the names that you mentioned, like Three Musketeers, Three Musketeers was a reference to a novel. But it was also very descriptive because the original candy bar actually was three candy bars. It was chocolate, strawberry, vanilla. That's why it was called Three Musketeers. Mm. And we only kept the chocolate. And Mars Bars was not named after the planet. It was named after the founder, Forrest Mars, which is an awesome name, by the way, not a planet. And then Milky Way, probably the best one, was not named after our, the place we call home. It was actually named after downtown St. Paul, Minnesota, which was called the Milky Way because... That's where all the dairies were. Did not know that. Really? Oh, and Baby Ruth. Baby Ruth wasn't named after uh, uh, the the baseball player. Was named after Grover Cleveland's daughter, Ruth. Seriously? <laughs> so it was like uh, us naming it after like a influencer or something like that. So what I'm saying is, is that the names that we now think of as literary or much more deep than they were, they were they were topical. They were something that was very topical. But I think the whole point that we're talking about is this change in how things are named, right? It's the idea that a lot of things that we name 
uh, brands and products now, they need to be super descriptive because we have so much to capture our attention. So we need to have stuff that's descriptive. Otherwise, we move on to the next thing. So you have to have like the reason for, you know, reason to believe right there in the title. So no one's going to try for dinner tonight. Try dystopian post-apocalyptic nightmare. Nobody wants that for dinner, Charlie. Maybe a late night snack. (laughs) I mean, Kevin, don't you think that this stems directly from all of the needs-based work that goes on in the industry? You got to differentiate. But I think the other thing is, too, is that when you're naming something, people are now thinking about a platform versus just the actual product. That's true. So if you were thinking of Three Musketeers bars, it was it was three bars. But today, not so much in food, but like you look at like tech names, they're always written at the platform level. So mm-hmm. like Meta is now platform level. Or I love Jack Dorsey's new one, Block, which is awesome. He's now being sued by H&R Block, if you didn't hear that. Uh, but it's like, we're going to launch tons of stuff off of this. And food companies do it all the time now. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I got to call a timeout. What's awesome about Block? He's naming it so that he can do many, many things with it versus just being, uh, you know, tied down to one thing. And I think people do it all the time now. I think brands do it all the time. They name it so that it's broad, which is good in one sense that it can help you. But it's bad in the other sense that it... it um, uh, you know, it, it's not as descriptive. So it's harder to, uh, you know, make that clear to people what it is. It's taken the personality out of it. I mean, you guys have heard me complain about there's no great jingles anymore. Mm-hmm. There's no slogans. People now, okay, if you go back to Three Musketeers time, they had, I don't know, a couple hundred SKUs in a, in a, in a typical grocery type store. And now we have 50, 60,000 SKUs within an average grocery store. People don't have time. So when they walk up to it, it has to, it has to hit. And you can't get that through something vague. So I think that's why, uh, you know, names like Oatly, I kind of know what that is. It's oats, but it's in the milk section. Okay, that's interesting. So that's what I mean. I think it's doing its job, so to speak. It's just doing it differently than what maybe things did before. I think Oatly is actually a very good name. I do too. I think it's descriptive and it also is aspirational. Yeah, yeah. No, people are not spending very much time thinking in a grocery store. A lot of it's automatic. And so you have to get them out of that. What is the length of time that someone takes to make a purchasing decision at the grocery store? I mean, it's like milliseconds, right? Yeah, it's... It's nothing. It's, it's scary to be too whimsical. You're right. It's not as fun. And also, I for a while there, what you were seeing with food and the way in which it was advertised was big companies weren't fun. Small companies were fun. Right. And it it was something about everything in a big company was pushed through a legal machine. And so it took all the fun out of it. And small companies, it was... It was, you know, they said whatever was on their mind. You're starting to see that switch now. You're starting to see some... Uh, you know, uh, legalized fun <laughs> back into messaging. <laughs> okay. But from a naming convention, I don't know. I mean, it's the first thing you see about something. So there's a lot of thought and a lot of uh, money that goes into naming. If you have questions or comments. Or complaints. Or complaints about Kevin, here's our mailbox. That's right, Susan. Write to three squares mail at gmail.com and we will get to as many of your questions as we possibly can. And your question may get featured in a future episode. All right, let's check the label. Has this podcast expired? It is time for us to go. Thanks again to General Mills for their support of this podcast. And thanks so much to our guest this week, Jason Clay from the World Wildlife Fund, one of the smartest people I'll ever meet. Three Squares is created and hosted by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. Thanks to our producers, Dave Beezing and Jason Jackson at Sound That Brands. And thanks to you for listening. 
Hey, and please hit the free subscribe button for more episodes. Then leave us a rating and review unless it's bad. And then I hope you hit the wrong button. Until next time, keep your plate clean, your glass full, and we will see you soon on Three Squares.